Now, we know a bunch of you have, have channeled your TV-watching energies into online platforms like Netflix and Amazon Prime, but I want you to know I'm holding out. I'm still kicking it old school on network TV, so I just started my 37th season of Survivor. That show still is on television, and in fact, there is a, a Tallahassee professor of engineering at FAM, um, FSU, and who's on this season, and so is he in attendance? No? Okay, somebody invite him next week and we'll recognize him. But, but for the uninitiated, Survivor is a reality show where 20 people are thrown onto an island where they endeavor to endure 39 days of complete and total misery. So they're, they're rained on constantly. They sleep out in the open or a little, under a little palm from. They eat a handful of rice a day. They have to boil their water. They get little sleep. They're exhausted injury, bugs, sickness, dehydration, and probably the, the, the coup de grace, the thing that would push me over the edge is they have to go potty outside, which sounds absolutely miserable. But the goal is to be the last person standing to sort of beat the odds. Now, the disciples in our text this morning are in the middle of their own version of spiritual survivor, except this is no game. The disciples, as we find them this morning, are in a dark, grim place. And as we've been plowing through these last few chapters of the upper room, we're reminded that, again, this is the last night of Jesus' life. He is going away. And he tells them in the process that life is not going to turn out like they thought it was. You see, they had attached themselves to Jesus' entourage and come into Jerusalem only a few days before as part of the triumphal entry, thinking this was their time, this was their season to take their seats at the table, Jesus' cabinet, to be on his right hand and his left hand. But instead, Jesus brings them up to the upper room the last night of his life and tells them, I'm going away. In fact, I'm going to die and you are going to be left leaderless. And, and as sort of leaderless sheep, you are going to be scattered. All of your dreams, as you have thought about them, are going to be broken. And then last week we saw that there was, in fact, one more piece of bad news. It, it just felt, felt a little like Jesus was kind of piling on when he told them, and I'll, and I'll read this from our text last week, When he warned them, he said, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. You talk about a punch in the gut. First, what an unlikely squad of dudes that Jesus is leaving behind to carry on his mission. Think about it. They are poor They are uneducated guys from Galilee. They are faithless. Remember, Peter had just moments before endeavored to say, Jesus, I'm with you to the end no matter what happens. And Jesus said, oh, really? Peter, you've got about an hour left on your faithfulness clock. So they are faithless. They are fearful. Now they learn that they're going to be opposed at every step of the way. Yet... This is what's amazing. 40 days later in Acts chapter 2, 
we find out that the world has literally been turned upside down by this same group of men and that they themselves have been transformed. And the question we have to ask is, how? And, just as importantly, what does that have to do with us? And so we're going to be in John 16, beginning in verse 4. If you can, if you're willing, if you're able, you can stand as we read God's word together. Jesus is speaking. We're going to put the words on the screen behind you if you don't have your own Bibles. Jesus says this. He said, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he write its truths upon our hearts. You may take your seats. When I was a young lad in the 70s, growing up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, my my mom would take me to the doctor, the pediatrician. And that, that visit was always clouded in some sort of ambiguity and suspicion. And I was like, well, why are we going to the doctor? And what's happening there? What's, what, what, are they going to, what are they going to do to me? And of course, I realize now that my mom was sort of protecting me at that time. Because little did I know, I was going there to cry, right? I was going there to get my shots. And it was always a meltdown. And my mom, because she, she wanted to avoid said met, meltdown, just knew that I couldn't handle the truth, to quote Jack Nicholson, she, she refrained to tell me until the last possible second. Now, that's kind of what's going on here. In verse 12, Jesus tells them, there's many things that I still have to tell you, but you just can't handle them right now. You can't handle the truth. It would just overwhelm you. You couldn't, you couldn't bear up under them. But indeed, Jesus has told them one thing for the very first time. Or if not the first time, it's, it's fresh in their minds. He has just told them that opposition is coming. And this is doubly bad because Jesus is no longer going to be there to absorb the body blows for them. 
Jesus has kind of been their representative, their, their, the, the tough guy, you know, the, the guy in your gang that you kind of push to the front who you know will, will take the blows and will protect you, will be kind of your, your bodyguard. And Jesus says, I'm going away. Not surprisingly, verse 6 tells us how the disciples are responding. It says, sorrow has filled your hearts. Now that word sorrow, it doesn't merely mean grief. It doesn't merely mean sadness, although it's most certainly not less than that. It literally means heaviness, to, to bear a weight. Do you know about that kind of grief? C.S. Lewis talks about it when he talks about the laziness of grief. And we don't have it for you here, but let me just read this. He says, And no one ever told me about the laziness of grief, Lewis says, except at my job, where the machine seems to run on much as usual. Listen to this. I loathe the slightest effort, not only writing, but even reading a letter is too much. Have you been in that place where the grief is so overwhelming you, you can hardly move. You, you see the world happening around you and you feel like you should be going to work or you should be studying or you should be doing your homework or taking care of the kids, but the grief has just kind of enveloped you like a cloud. That's what the disciples are experiencing. But understand something. This is not a grief that is directed primarily towards Jesus or that has Jesus in, you, in view. This is a grief that is fundamentally a preoccupation with themselves. Look at verse 5. Jesus kind of chides them ever so gently and says, none of you even ask where I'm going. Let's think about that. Here is this man who has poured literally three years of his life into this band. He's given them his blood, sweat, and tears. He's, he's stayed awake for them. He's fed them. He's clothed them. He's protected them. He's about to go to the most gruesome, brutal death that any person could ever imagine, and the disciples are mourning their loss, their grief. They are, and I don't think this is an exaggeration, a self-absorbed mess. So I have to ask us again as we dig into the text, how is it that in the span of 40 days, these men go from self-preoccupation, fear, anxiety, distress, to despair. Maybe that's where some of you are right now. You can't even envision something beyond what's kind of right in front of you. How do these men go from that, from proclaiming the gospel and being themselves willing to die? What happens on the eve of Pontius Pilate to Pentecost 40 days later. Simply put, the Holy Spirit happens. That's what changes. And that's what we want to wrap our hearts and minds around this morning by, by really asking and trying to answer two fundamental questions. Number one, why is it so important that Jesus leave? What, why, why is that crucial to the whole dynamic here? Why is it going to be better for them that Jesus depart? Because that will help us understand 
how vital the Spirit is. But number two, what then must the Spirit do? How do we recognize the work of the Holy Spirit? Very, very importantly, how do we recognize the Holy Spirit's work in our own lives? That's, that's where we're going. So why Jesus must leave? I'm, I'm realizing I'm sharing anecdotes from the 1970s and all these illustrations, but here we go. I would go over to my grandparents' house. I was six, seven, eight, and, and I would spend the night, and we would all gather around the TV to watch, wait for it, all in the family, right? Archie Bunker. And, and, for, and for all you millennials and younger who, who have no idea what I'm even mentioning, my favorite part of the episode was the beginning credits where he and Edith would sing the song. Do you remember it? And don't even think I'm going to sing right now. Don't even, Matt, for one second think that. But I will quote it when it says, the song begins, Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. Songs that made the hit parade. Guys like us, we had it made. And you can finish the rest. What? Those were the days. Yes, I see all the gray hairs singing right now. Now, there is always, that song reflects the temptation that all of us have to point to some bygone era, whether it's historical or cultural or religious or even in church history, and to say, man, if we could have only lived then, how much better it would have been. If, and, we, and we do this, by the way, with church history. We look at this, this era of the founding of the church and we say, oh my goodness, would it have been so awesome if we were one of those apostles? I mean, if I was one of those apostles, disciples, and ate with Jesus and drank with him and ministered to him and prayed with him, and I was just so faithful and obedient, if, G, if, if I was one of those people, life would have been so much more awesome. You ever find yourself being sort of spiritually nostalgic in that kind of way? Interestingly, that's not what Jesus says. In fact, Jesus says something diametrically opposite. Look at verse 7. It's the key verse in this whole text. We want to unpack it, understand it, and apply it. But listen again to what Jesus says. It's It's an astounding verse if you think about it. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. That word, to your advantage, it's kind of an economic term. It really means profitable, to turn a profit, to to, to look at two sides of the equation and say, my, 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 my income exceeds my expenses, and so I have a surplus. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, as long as I am with you, you you're forever going to be on the wrong side of the, of the debit credit column. But when I leave, it is to your advantage. Something profound is going to happen, and, and what is that thing? Two things that I think account for why Jesus says it's better for him to go. It's important for us to understand. And the first one is this. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, is not omnipresent. And by that, I mean he is not everywhere all the time. Now, make no mistake, Jesus is God. He does not cease to be God when he is man. In fact, he is 100% man, 100% God even now. 
But as part of his earthly ministry and as part of him taking on flesh and blood, there were certain aspects of his, of his personhood, his, his being God that he set aside for a time. Things like um, you know, being omnipresent everywhere, no matter where. Jesus was a man, which means he, could, he was confined to space-time realities. He was in one place geographically at that moment and not in another place at the same time. Now, this interplay between Jesus' divinity and his manhood we see played out all through the Gospel of John. So, so for example, in John chapter 4, remember the woman at the well? Jesus comes and he asks her to go get her husband, and she says, I don't have a husband. And he was like, you're right. You've got like seven boyfriends, and you've been living in sin. And so Jesus there is exercising his omniscience as God. But yet, why did Jesus come to the well in the first place? Because he was what? Thirsty. He was tired. Jesus in his ministry had to sleep. Jesus in his ministry had to pray. It says that Jesus wept, he shed tears. In John chapter 11, when Lazarus has died, what do Mary and Martha tell Jesus? Jesus, if you had only been what? Here. This would not have happened. My brother would not have died. So in verse 7, when Jesus says, when I leave, I will send my helper in his place. That, that should get our, our attention big time because remember the helper is whom? Is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. But the Holy Spirit is in fact the very presence and spirit of Jesus Christ himself. And here's what Jesus is saying. When I was on earth, one, one place, one time, here face to face. But when I'm gone, I'm gone. And I'm walking here, and I'm not going to be over there. But he says, when I send my Holy Spirit, now listen, I'm going to live. My very presence is going to be in each and every believer. Do, do you know how amazing this is? That when you leave today, um, this, is, this is not the holy, sacred sanctum of God here at Four Oaks Center. It's not like God's special Shekinah glory dwells in the frozen meat section that used to be like right over there. That's not the way it works. The Holy Spirit goes with you. If you are a Christian, if you've trusted in Christ, there is nowhere that you can go that the Spirit does not go with you. The Spirit is, Jesus is not confined in one time in one space. He is everywhere all the time where his Spirit is. Now you can see now what began to happen at Pentecost. Because when the apostles go out and start preaching, it's not the presence of Jesus simply right here. It's here and here and here. It's a force multiplier. Jesus' presence is everywhere. Everywhere his people are going, everywhere his word is being proclaimed, and lives are transformed. Their lives are transformed. Because this idea that Jesus, that only the Holy Spirit is everywhere all the time where his people are. That's, that's a very hard lesson for us. I think it's particularly challenging for parents to remember the, on, the only person who can be with your children everywhere all the time is the Holy Spirit. 
as much as you might wish that you could follow your child around and play Holy Spirit in their lives for the rest of your life. And sounds exhausting, but nonetheless, some are tempted to it, right? We have to remember, I am just one person limited in time and space. I know I exert great influence over my kids, but at the same time, there is only one who is ultimately in control. And because of that, we better get praying, right? Jesus' spirit is the only one who's in charge of our children. Guys, you could apply that into a variety of relationships as well. To your spouse, to your friends, to a, to a neighbor. So whatever the case may be, ultimately we're saying something very powerful here. Jesus says, he says, I have to leave so that my spirit can be everywhere all the time where my people are. Now, I do think there's a second reason that this text points us to about why Jesus must go. Because as long as Jesus remains on earth, something remains undone until he does. And that something that remains undone is the cross. See, Jesus has a mission before him. And his mission is threefold. One, he is to go to the cross and to pay the penalty and the debt for our sins. Secondly, he has to to rise from the grave. He has to to show that he is God, that he conquers life and conquers death. But there is something else he also needs to do, which we don't often talk about. But he must ascend to heaven, the ascension. See, by Jesus ascending to heaven, he is showing that I am Lord. I am in charge of the universe. I am sitting at the right hand of God the Father interceding for you. And Jesus is basically telling us that until I leave you and accomplish salvation, the Spirit's work can't be activated in your life. See, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't do any good for the Spirit to come if the Spirit doesn't have a job to do. But once Jesus goes to the cross, rises to the grave, goes into heaven, this is what theologians call redemption is accomplished. But until redemption is accomplished, the Holy Spirit can't come and apply the benefits of redemption to you and to me. So this raises a very obvious question. It's one I just want to get you to ponder on. What's the most important thing the Holy Spirit can do for you today? I want you to think about that. How would you answer that? What's the most important thing the Holy Spirit can, can do for us? Is it, a, is it a gift? Is it a healing? Is it an ecstatic utterance? Not to denigrate any of those things necessarily. Is it, it is, is it success, a platform success? If only God would give me this platform at work or in ministry, I could, I could be a witness, a testimony to him. What is the most important thing that Jesus, that the Holy Spirit can do for us? It's found in verse 14. Here's what he says. He, meaning the Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Folks, the chief mission 
of the Holy Spirit, not the only mission, but it is the chief mission of the Holy Spirit, is to open your eyes to Jesus. It is to make Jesus great in the eyes of his people. It is to magnify who Jesus is. Anytime you see ministries, books, speakers, I could go on and on and on, where there is an emphasis on the mission of the Holy Spirit, which there most certainly should be, or this idea of being spirit-filled, but yet wants to divorce that theology from who Jesus Christ is, be very, very cautious. Be very, very careful. You see, the Spirit, look, look back at verse 13. This is, a, this is a great verse. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Now listen, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. In other words, the Spirit is doing the bidding of Jesus Christ. Which means that the Spirit's chief mission is to glorify the Son. And anytime you see an emphasis or a manifestation on certain aspects or manifestations of the Spirit's work, but that is divorced from Jesus Christ. So in other words, you could come into a place and... There's all kinds of things happening under the name of a spirit-filled ministry, but Jesus is not being lifted up. Jesus is not being glorified. That's not a work of the Spirit. Because the chief work of the Spirit is that you would know Jesus Christ better. Now, under this second point here of what the Spirit must do, there's three specific ways that Jesus tells us that the Spirit makes him, Jesus, known and magnified. So there's three different ways. Look at verse first. Let me read the verse, and then we'll unpack it. Verse 8. And when he comes, meaning the Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Go put that one on your Facebook timeline, right? Go, go, go do that one. Now, that word convict, let's talk about that for a second. When we say we are convicted about something, oftentimes what do we mean? Went to Zibardi's other night with some, some friends, and um, it was such a great meal and, and so voluminous that uh, my stomach was reminding me of how awesome it was about 2 a.m. that morning. And it was reminding me, you're not going to sleep tonight. Just get over it. You're not, it's not going to happen. And at that moment, I felt what? convicted. I felt, I felt bad for eating so much food. I, I was discouraged. I had some guilt. I had some regret. I was convicted, but of course, not so convicted that I wouldn't do the exact same thing again if I had the opportunity, right? See, that's, that's oftentimes the way we talk about the word convicted. That's not the way Jesus uses it here. This is not a subjective means of of, of feeling guilt or responsibility, although the Spirit does that work as well. That's not what it means here, though. What's in view here with this word convicted is the idea of a courtroom or a trial. Imagine that an accused is on trial and he is prosecuted and is found by the jury to be guilty. What do we say of that person? They are what? They're convicted. 
They are a convicted felon. They are a convicted criminal. And whether that person feels guilt, subjectively or otherwise, is irrelevant to the idea that they indeed, by the eyes of the law, are guilty. It's, an, it's a judicial, objective sentence. And that is what Jesus says the Spirit does in relationship to the world. The Spirit is, in essence, the prosecuting attorney. The prosecutor who comes and lays down an indictment, there is a guilty verdict, and that person stands before the the, the bar, before the law, as declared guilty. They are convicted. Now, this idea of God pronouncing judgment or a guilty verdict, convicting us, this is really all throughout the Bible. In fact, we, we see it in the Old Testament so many times in the office of the Old Testament prophet. Do you realize that, that one of the chief functions of the Old Testament prophet was not to come and say, how are you guys doing? You feeling okay? You feeling like church lately? Or you, feel, God, God, you feeling spiritual? Or No, no. The, the, what, would, what would the Old Testament prophet do? The Old Testament prophet would come and pronounce an indictment, a conviction. So think about Malachi 1 just for a moment. If then, if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts. See, he's bringing an indictment. Oh, you priests who despise my name. And now listen, this is, this is us in the jury stand, isn't it? But you say, how have we despised your name? Don't we so oftentimes do that? When, when God, offer, God brings a, a sentence down upon us, that we know we're guilty, that we know that we've, we've fallen short, we've known we've sinned against God, and we kind of push back on it. And God's like, how much longer do you want to do this? Let me tell you. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? And then God's just like, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. You can read this on and on in Malachi, by the way. We see this also in the New Testament. Because who is the first prophet of the New Testament? It is John the Baptist. And he's not out in the wilderness having a cup of coffee with the Pharisees. They come to him. He offers an indictment. Remember, what does he say? You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? See, that's the role of the Spirit. And one of the key indicators that the Spirit is working in your life and in my life has to do with how we view the sin in our life. Okay, look at verse 8 again. Notice that sin is singular, not plural. See, a lot of times when we talk about sins, that sounds better, doesn't it? That means mistakes. That means mishaps or missing the mark. You know, I almost hit the bullseye, Pastor Paul, but I was just a little bit off. I I missed the mark. It doesn't say sins. It doesn't talk. This isn't about imperfections. Sin is a state of being. It's a moral condition. And what Jesus is saying is that the world's problem, your problem, my problem, is not our imperfections and not our sins. Those are simply symptoms of a larger problem. The larger problem is sin with a capital S. 
We are morally estranged from God. That is our fundamental issue. And the Spirit has come to open our eyes to it. Now, if you look back at verse 9, this little, this little note Jesus makes concerning sin because they do not believe in me. What, what, what is he saying there? See, Jesus, see the Spirit, there's a purpose here for why the Spirit has come to convict of sin. And, and the purpose is that you and I would turn, that we would be changed, that we would, be re, that we would repent, that we would be restored in relationship to God. But in order for that to happen, we have to recognize our need for Jesus. One of my favorite um, writers, speakers, authors, pastors, Louis Giglio, always, has always said, if you have an itty-bitty view of your sin, you're going to have an itty-bitty Savior. If you have an itty-bitty view of your imperfections, then you're going to have an itty-bitty Jesus. But if you are growing in grace, a, a genuine work of the Spirit is that he is opening your eyes to who you truly are. And the more you see who you truly are, the more you see you need Jesus. So the the true mark of the Spirit's work in our lives is not that we don't sin, because we do. Sometimes Christians sin grievously. The true mark of the Spirit's work in your life and my life is that we're not okay with it. That we are desiring repentance and change, and we are falling upon the mercies of, of Christ. Now, verse 10 mentions this idea of righteousness. So, going back to the courtroom for a second, if you were going to indict someone in a court of law, it's because they have violated a particular penal code XYZ. So, so when the Spirit comes to make judgment into our hearts, into the hearts of the world, what are his indicting documents, so to speak? What, what is that standard of righteousness? And see, and this is so tempting again to say, well, as long as my righteousness exceeds that person, I'm all right. Or Pastor Paul, I mean, I know I'm not perfect. And I know that I have some imperfections, but, you know, I'm a little more perfect than my spouse. You know that, right? You know, we, 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 play, we, we, we play that game. But that's not the righteousness that is spoken here of Jesus. If you look in verse 13, I think it's clear what he's referring to. Verse 13, it says that I will, the Spirit will guide you into all truth. The Spirit only speaks on behalf of Christ. And we looked at this in in John 14 a couple of weeks ago. Jesus says, disciples, you're going to remember my words. And you are going to record them and put them down in writing. And they are going to be the standard of truth for the church, that is the standard of righteousness that I hold you to. See, a lot of times, especially in a God told me generation, to accord to the Spirit all sorts of craziness that are way outside the bounds of the Word of God. You know, I've heard many people over the last 20-some-odd years of, 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 of ministry who have accorded to the Spirit all sorts of things that are, are completely contrary or outside of the Word of God. 
well, I know that God's, that God's ultimate goal for me is to be happy, and I know I can't be happy in this particular context or with this job or with this spouse, and so I'm making a different decision. I know God would want me to do that. I feel his spirit leading me to do that. That's a lie. The spirit does not speak out of accordance or above or around or contrary to the word that Jesus has given his church. That's why Jesus says, to the apostles I give my truth. They will pass it down. It is to be your standard of righteousness. Another thing that happens as we're having our sin exposed and our lack of righteousness exposed is that we come to a very real assessment of ourselves. Look at verse 11. It says, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The idea, it's, it's an argument from, from the greater to the, to the lesser. If Satan is bound for the judgment, then how much more also than the people who follow him, his servants, his workers of iniquity. See, there, there's, there's a sobering reality of what the Spirit is doing here. And you may say, Pastor Paul, I came to learn about the Holy Spirit today, and this sounds really grim. This sounds really grim. But I want to spend just a couple minutes here at the end showing you what I think is the amazing good news of this passage. See, because the Spirit is indeed our prosecutor. And if you are on trial as someone who's being prosecuted for something and you are a defendant, what do you need right then and there? A good defense lawyer, right? You, you need an advocate. You need someone who's going to argue your case before the bench. And we can see the, the wheel spinning in John's writing in his first epistle when he says, now this is just amazing news. This is the same John writing. I think he's picking up on this same language, and this is what he says. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's the pr- we don't want you to sin, but you're going to sin. The Spirit's going to show you. So what happens when the Spirit shows you? But if anyone does sin, we have a what? Advocate. The same word for paraclete. It's the same word, paraclete, helper. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, this is an amazing piece of news. Because did you know if you're a Christian, if you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is your prosecutor. But the Holy Spirit is also your advocate. Wears both hats. Is, and not only that, is... is is trying your case before the Father, pleading your case before the Father, and the Father is saying, not guilty, because we're just bringing our righteousness. But Jesus says, I'm giving you my righteousness, and now you can stand before me. That's what we sang this morning, in Christ alone. See, Jesus is both prosecutor and advocate at the same time. And how is this possible? This just is, is absolutely mind-blowing. This is the way Paul describes it in Romans 3. He says, It was to show his righteousness at the present time 
so that he might be just, in other words, the judge, the standard of righteousness, that's God, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, Jesus said, I'm not merely pronouncing judgment, but I'm taking your place by having the judgment of the judge poured out on me. That's why I can be your advocate. I could advocate to the Father and say, I I know they're messed up. I know they're sinful. I know they're broken. I know they don't have anything to offer you. So here's what I'm offering, Father, my righteousness. I, I died for them. And now I am advocating for them. And the true work of the Holy Spirit as he comes into the world is that some will hear that message and they will harden your, their hearts. It will be offensive. It will, it will step on toes. It is disconcerting. It sounds judgmental. It, it pronounces a judgment upon lives. Or the Holy Spirit comes and we say, I am the man. I am the woman. The, the, I'm not offering up anything to you Lord Jesus, accepts my sin paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why we, we do communion each and every Sunday, so we can act out in parable, storybook form, the reality that you and I never, ever, ever get past the need for the gospel. You and I never, ever, ever get past our need for an advocate who says, not guilty. You are my son. You are my daughter because my Holy Spirit lives in you. Let's pray.